Uh, we're still looking at uh, the book of First Peter, and uh, Peter's real emphasis in the book is how uh, the people of God are to live in the last days. How do we live uh, in these last days, uh, the time from Christ on until he comes again the second time, are considered the last days? And how do we live in those last days? And that's a question that people have asked from time immemorial. Even the Old Testament people were peculiar. They were different than all the other nations around them, and they had to answer that question too. And sadly, that group of people failed. They failed miserably, and sadly, the church, following the Old Testament people of Israel, also has failed, I think, in sometimes miserably. We've tried everything from, as I said last week, asceticism, where we've completely separated ourselves from the world and gone out and lived in caves and cloisters and monasteries and things like that and completely shut out the world. We've tried that all the way to what is called Christendom, where the church became the government. It actually ruled the world for a while from Rome, had its own army, hired other armies as mercenaries, fought wars, appointed governments, and uh, we tried that, and that didn't work. In fact, that was a terrible disaster for the church. Jesus had a different idea. The apostles expand on that idea and tell us how we are to live in the world, and it's not somewhere in between those two extremes. It's a completely different life. It's a gospel-centered, gospel-oriented life that is not on that continuum between asceticism and full and complete political and cultural uh, identification. Jesus said in his prayer in uh, John 17, Father, don't take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil or the evil one. Keep them from Satan. They're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. And so the New Testament anticipates the tension that we are going to live in. God understands that we're in tension, and every generation of Christian people has been in tension. You see, uh, because today there's so much proliferation of social media and stuff, you see people uh, being very distressed, very wringing their hands. And I keep telling you folks here at Christ the King, I don't want our church to be a bunch of hand-wringing, fearful Christians. Jesus said, do not fear. And so we have no reason to fear. Uh, and so how do we live in the world and be for the world? Not apart from it, but in it and for it. And that's what I think uh, Peter's getting at, Paul was getting at it, Jesus appointed to it. How do we live in and for the world, yet avoid its corrosive power and influence? That's the question. And so uh, let's take, uh, take a look at this passage again uh, from uh, 1 Peter uh, chapter 2. And uh, we're going to read 11 through 25 again, and then I'll, but I'm only going to speak on one, one little section here, uh, verses 21 through 25. But I want to read the whole passage to put it into context. The passage is in your bulletin in an insert, or if you have your Bible, you're welcome to use that as well. Uh, so now hear God's word. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that 
When they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject to the Lord, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or the governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, When mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin, you are beaten for it, you endure it? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps." He committed no sin, neither was a deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. So the New Testament is anticipating that if you're truly going to live as a Christian, and I'm, I'm talking about something different than what you may think living as a Christian is, but if you're going to live as a Christian in this world, then, then you are going to suffer. You're going to suffer, and you're going to suffer unjustly. And this is very hard for American Christians. It is extremely hard because we have codified in our Constitution and our Declaration of Independence, all these, that these truths are inalienable. We have rights that are inalienable, and we think that they come from God. We have declared that. They come from God, and so they're inalienable. To life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Yes? Well, I dare you to find that in your Bible. It's just not there. Now, it's a great thing. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. But Christians should not expect that life, that I have a right to these things, and I can just do whatever uh, I want in America, and nothing is going to happen to me. You can for a while, but the days are coming, perhaps, people, when that is not going to be true. It's not true in a lot of the rest of the world. So why do we think that it's never going to happen here? And if it did happen here, what you'd find is that a lot of Christians would be whining and crying and, and, and begging for mercy and changing their religion. They'd be giving up their religion. Because persecution is real. Look, open your eyes, look around the world. There are people that are suffering immensely, dying for their faith. We have never faced that in this country. 
And so it's incumbent upon us as Christians to look into these things deeply, to take them seriously, to not presume upon God in any way, and prepare ourselves perhaps for some future being excluded from the power base in our country. Right now, we're in the center, we're at the center of the universe when it comes to power. And that's a dangerous place for us. And so as your pastor, uh, maybe it's unpopular for me to say this, but I'm warning you. Don't get too comfortable. Okay? Everybody okay with that? I love the United States of America. Please don't accuse me of not being a patriot. All right? But listen carefully. Christians are to have their roots deeper than just that. Yes? Deeper than that. So listen carefully. He tells us to abstain, keep our distance from the things in the world that wage war against us. What he says, they're waging war. These things are coming against us. They're actually assailing us and at the same time holding us back. And there are things, I don't know what they are in your life. I generally can identify them in my life. And sometimes they're common to all of us. Sometimes they're not. But you need to be aware of what those things are. He tells us abstain from them. But at the same time, he said engage deeply. He says in verse 12... Keep your conduct honorable see, so that people will see your good deeds and glorify God. So he's telling you, abstain, but yet you need to understand that you need to be seen in the world. You're supposed to engage. You're not to hide somewhere out in the wilderness away from people and keep away from people in the world. You're to engage deeply. People should see you. And, so he, and then he goes on and he redefines our freedom. Look at verse 16 and 17. This is just recapping, getting you back into the thinking process here. He says, we are in bondage to God. He redefines freedom. He says, bondage to God is service to God, is actually freedom in, to God and service to others. Live as people who are free, yet fear God or have deep reverence for God. In other words, every step you take, every movement you take, any lifestyle that you choose, any action that you choose, is, pre- is, is put into the context of God's there. He's watching, seeing. Do, am I afraid? Do I have fear, respectful fear of God? Very important. And he talks about it in three arenas. We talked about this last week. Civil civil society, just society in general. Then he talks about the workplace where we spend most of our time, almost all of us spend most of our time. Even if you're a stay-at-home mom, are, are y'all, you ladies that stay at home, you just sitting around doing nothing all day? Yeah, no, of course not. You're working all day. I mean, the workplace is where we spend, the, apart from bed, where we sleep, workplace is where we spend most of our time. And he, so he picks these up, the civil arena, the workplace, and then, of course, he talks about marriage. That's in chapter 3. We'll look at that in a week or so. Jesus saying our life and our work, everything that we do, the cross is central. And the cross is a symbol of suffering, but not just suffering. It's suffering unjustly. It's being able to stand there and take it for the sake of the gospel And say, I'm going to do this redemptively. I have a purpose in my suffering. Okay? And we'll we'll get to that in just a moment. So there's just sort of a 
an overview, and I'll get through these next three points very quickly. We're going to look at the writing copy. I introduced this last week, a writing copy. That's what Peter's talking about when he says an example, a writing copy. And then secondly, we're going to look at a redemptive response. The, uh, uh, something that's very central to Peter's thinking is responding redemptively to people around you, a redemptive response. And then thirdly, we'll take a look at our Redeemer who in fact, for your sake and mine, responded redemptively. And Peter hits all these. Uh, Look at verse 21. He says, To this you have been called. In other words, he says, It's a calling that is on you. To this you've been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you may follow in His footsteps. Example, the word example in, uh, uh, in Greek is a very rare word. It's not only rare in the Bible, I think it's only used once or twice here and maybe one other place. And it's very rarely used in Greek literature anywhere. It's the Greek word hupogrammos, and it comes from the word grapho, which means to write. It's a, it's a derivative of that. And it means to trace our lives, or to trace over. We apply it in the sense of tracing our lives. But it, in other words, it was like the, uh, I told you last week, it was like those notebooks we used to get in uh, school when we were kids and had the alphabet on there. And you were to take your pencil and you were to go over the letter and kind of trace and get the feel of how the A looked and the B and the C caps and, and little letters and then the cursive and the little letters and all that. And you trace them and then you had a line underneath where you would go and actually practice and then look at the two. That's what this, this word means. It's a writing, uh, a, a writing copy. And what the Apostle is saying is that Jesus was the writing copy. He's the perfect letters. The perfect letters. And that we are to trace our lives over His. Okay? Get the picture. Then he says we are to follow in his steps. He uses another illustration. He said, you know, there's a path out there that Jesus walked, and you're to walk in that same path. Tracing your life. Walking in the path. And he specifically says, here's what it is. Suffering unjustly. Now what we like to do uh, in fact, uh, you all, many of you will remember what would Jesus do, WWJD. Some of you were raised on that, yes? You, you, it hit you right in the, 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 the late 90s, right? How many of you remember that? How many of you actually had the bracelet? Yeah, yeah, we wore these bracelets, WWJD. And I remember at RTS walking into the bookstore one day and they had a big blackboard up there. And it had WWJD. And then underneath, some one of the students had written in, Whatever Jesus did would be a whole lot better than anything you will ever do. And that's the difference, folks. The writing copy is perfect. Perfect. What we, what, no matter how good you get at writing, it's never going to be quite as exact and quite as good as that. And that's not the point. The point is not for Jesus to be your moral example. Be like Jesus. If you ever come to Christ the King, and I get up and say, be like Jesus, I hope somebody gets up and says, you've told us never to do that. 
We cannot be like Him in exactly the same way, but we can trace our lives like Him, and in that sense, be like Him. Do you get the difference? He's not merely a moral example that you're just constantly shooting at and trying somehow jumping, jumping to get to. Christianity will be odious to you. You'll hate it. And it's why many of our children leave the church. Because they've always been told, be good, be good, be good. And my gosh, who doesn't tell their kids be good? But don't tell them that's the gospel. You can be Muslim, you can be Buddhist, you can be Jehovah's Witness, you can be nothing, you can be an atheist and still tell your kids be good, yes. What's the difference? When you tell your children and you tell yourself, it's not about being good, it's about somebody that was good for me. Somebody that did it for me in my place. Somebody that gave it all, went all the way to the bottom for me. Somebody that went to rock bottom. I don't have to go to rock bottom because if I get there, he's there and he's going to hold me up. What is the gospel if it's not that, my friends? What is it? It's nothing but moral good to just be good. Well, you can go to any church and be good. You can go to any religion and be good. But only in Christianity do you find someone good for you. Only in Christianity do you find the perfect letters traced and written. And somebody that tells you, follow me. I know your letters aren't going to be perfect, but listen... They may not be perfect, but they'll be legible. Yes? Have any of you gotten a prescription from your doctor? Are any of you able to read the prescription? No. But I go to my drugstore, I give it to them, they give me drugs. Hey, they're always the right ones. I don't know where they're getting it from. I don't know how they read that. No, your letters aren't going to be perfect. No, your life's not going to be perfect. But your life can be legible. People can actually recognize Jesus Christ in you. So we're called to suffer unjustly as He suffered. This is what He's talking about. Not a merely a moral example. Here's how high you need to jump in order to get to me. No, he's saying here's the, here's the path you follow. Here's the life you trace. It's a life of suffering unjustly. Okay? Dr. Clowney in his commentary says this, Peter doesn't ask us, listen, Peter doesn't ask us to view suffering as inevitable in the world under the curse. He doesn't ask us for stoic resignation. He says, oh, I'm going to suffer. Well, poor me. I guess that's just the way it is. That's fatalism. Inshallah. Whatever God wills, that's fatalism. You know, I had people in my family, they would say, Inshallah. Whatever God wills, it's fatalism. And you hear Christians say it all the time. At a conversation, I'll see you next Sunday. And what's the next thing that comes out of their mouth? If God, God willing. Well, you, you're just a great Christian Muslim. Inshallah, why don't you just say that? God willing, what does that mean? Would somebody please tell me what that means? <laughs> no, yeah, maybe, right. No, we don't even mean that. If we say, well, maybe I'll be there, I would understand that. But no, we say, God willing. Okay, so he doesn't ask us for stoic resignation. You get that? He's not asking for that. And so he says this, clowny. 
A life of suffering is our calling, not our fate. It's our calling. In other words, to embrace that kind of suffering, you do it willingly. There's an anticipation that it's going to do something, that there's purpose in it. It's not purposeless. It's purposeful. It has the other person in mind, not you. It's exactly the opposite of demanding our rights and living a life of entitlement. It's saying no to all that. It's saying, no, I will give. I will be for you. I will give to my world. I will sacrifice for my world. I'll become an artist. That's how I'll serve my world. I'm going to be an artist and I'm going to create great art. I'm going to be a movie producer and create great movies. Not necessarily Christian movies, but great movies. I'm going to be a musician. I'm going to write beautiful music. I'm going to be a doctor and I'm going to heal the sick. I'm going to be a lawyer and defend people who need lawyering. I'm going to be a teacher and I'm going to help children and young people discover the glories of God's world and science and art and literature. Do you see the expansiveness of this vision? Do you see the grandeur of this vision? It's saying that we are for the world. But we're not going to be corrupted by the world. We're not going to be corrupted by the evil in the world, but we're going to be for it. In it. And for it. A life of suffering is our calling, not our fate. The psalmist said, many are the afflictions of the righteous. So expect it. Embrace it. It's a calling. Do it willfully, joyfully, purposely, redemptively, explicitly for the sake of the gospel. Let me say one last thing about suffering. This kind of suffering that Peter is talking about is not when you're sick or you have a bad back or when you've lost a spouse or an uncle, as my case this last week, or Deanne's case this last week, or that your doctor tells you you have cancer, which is why I'm not going to the doctor anymore, because when I do, they tell me I have. So, all right, so that's not the kind of suffering he has in mind. He is specifically talking about suffering because you are a Christian. That you're a Christian who is suffering. Because you're a Christian. In other words, people are actually able to tell that you're a Christian. And so at work, somebody, you know, jams a pencil in your eye, not literally, okay, I'm not talking about literally, but somebody at work undermines you or does something to you that's really bad because, you know, this guy's a Christian, I'm going to take advantage of him. And you say, you know what? Okay, it's on. We're on. I'm going to see my supervisor. I have rights in this country. Well, you've just gone against what Peter's teaching and what Jesus taught. But when you say, you know what? It's okay. In fact, I'm going to help him get the promotion over me. Now you're going to suffer. Your paycheck's going to be less. He's going to get the promotion. You're not. Do you see the difference, folks? I mean, think about it for a minute. When they're taking advantage of you because you're a Christian, that's what Peter's talking about. Now, if it's just in the normal course 
of your work and they don't know anything. They don't even know you're a Christian and who cares? They don't even have any idea about that. Then maybe you should go see your supervisor. Maybe something unjust is occurring that you can and should pursue. But when it's because you're a Christian, you have the freedom. You have the freedom, actually, listen carefully, in both cases, to say, you know what, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to go ahead and let this pass. Because good for him, good for this guy, or good for this woman. Do you see the difference? You are free. You don't have to demand your rights. You can if you want, under the law. But you could actually be free. Live free, he says. You're free in Christ, but fear God. Think about it. There's a completely, this is a whole different lifestyle. This is not somewhere on the continuum between the two uh, extremes of asceticism and Christendom. This is not in between, folks. This is something utterly different. This is a man who came down from glory and said, me for you. And he's saying, now you trace your life after that. You make that your life's principle, me for you. Wow. This is revolutionary. This is incredible. The redemptive response. Let's look at that next. I'll go quickly because I don't want to keep you overly late. The redemptive response. What is unjust suffering? Listen to what Peter says it is. First of all, he talks about our relative innocence. 18 to 20, in these verses, he's talking about our relative innocence. He's saying, Being, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only the good and gentle, but the unjust. For this is gracious when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Do you hear what he's saying? What credit is it when you sin and you're beaten for it and you endure? That's nothing. You deserved a beating. You deserved it. But he's saying, but if when you do good and you suffer and you endure, this is gracious in the sight of God. Do you see he's talking about your innocence, but it's relative because sometimes you do deserve a beating, sometimes you don't. But what he's saying is you're free in that circumstance to act according to God's, to God's judgment and not your own. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I'll repay. You don't need to be always exacting. You can, but you don't need to. You can live in freedom. Real, true freedom. So he talks about our relative innocence. There are times when you do the right thing and you still suffer for it. Yes? Then he talks about his utter innocence. Our relative innocence and his utter innocence. You with me? He puts those two out there. Jesus' utter innocence and our relative. And he says this, He committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. In other words, he's describing Jesus to you in broad terms. He's saying, here is a man who committed no sin and never lied. There was no deceit in his mouth, neither in his actions. He was completely free from sin and he suffered. So he talks about his utter innocence. And then he describes it in the redemptive response that follows. Verse 23, look, it's so clear. It's like jumps out at the page at you. His utter innocence and his redemptive response. When reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to God who judges justly. Do you see the difference? This is absolutely revolutionary. Folks, if, we, if anybody, if, if our little church, just a few of us, I mean, there's, a, there's just a handful of us here. Come on. And the whole world full of Christians, supposedly. 
But how many do this? How many actually live like this? Very, very few. And what I, you know, I don't have to answer for other churches. I do have to answer for us, and I want us to be these people. Will you do it? Will you, will you join me? Who will do it? Don't, don't raise your hand unless you mean it. See, okay. Just a caution. We've got to be this kind of people, folks. And there may be, in the, in the next few years, there could be plenty of opportunities for us. In fact, I think there already are. Plenty of opportunities where we can do this. When we're reviled, we don't revile in return. When we suffer, we don't threaten. I'm going to get them back. Uh, But we continue trusting God, the gospel. We continue putting our faith in God and following Him, even if it costs us, especially when it costs us. It's counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive. You know, this was Black History Month, and I don't know how many of you followed some of the things that were on the news and elsewhere on both sides. Some people saying, ah, you know, it's no big deal, and other people making a big deal. But none of us can deny, no one can deny the fact that the civil rights movement in the United States back in the 50s and 60s was one of the most successful gospel-centered transformational movements that ever occurred in modern history. No one can deny that. And Martin Luther King, the black activist, many of you know his story. Some of you were alive when I was alive when he was uh, leading the marches and things like that. He said this, and it's been quoted, oh, it's all over the place right now, but I'm going to give you the whole quote because I want you to hear exactly what he said. The ultimate weakness of violence, in other words, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, tit for tat, you with me? The ultimate weakness of violence is that it is a descending spiral begetting the very thing it seeks to destroy. Instead of diminishing evil, it multiplies it. You may murder a liar, but you cannot murder the lie, nor establish the truth. You may murder the hater, but you do not murder hate, nor establish love. Returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of the stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. How many of you deserve to be a Christian today? Please show me your hands. Here, I would like to count your hands. How many of you deserve it? Nobody? Only me? No, I'm kidding. We know that the very heart of our gospel is we do not deserve the grace we get. Then why can't we love? Why can't we forgive? What's impeding us? And I would say it is this. I would say it is not trusting God for the ultimate justice that He promised us. Not seeing that Jesus, the light of the world, came into our darkness, went down into the gutter of our lives, took our filth, literally, our filth, our sin, our shame, our punishment, our penalty, actually took it on Him. He clothed Himself with our sin. He was naked, completely naked, and He clothed Himself with our sin. 
and in return takes off his robes of righteousness and slips them around our filthy selves for us, as us. And if we believe that, if we actually live that way, the world would say, wow, I don't know about all the other people, but those people at Christ the King, they're different. They are different. I don't know about the rest of the people in El Paso. I really don't. God bless them. But the elders of this church and the deacons of this church and myself as your pastor, we're responsible for you. And I'm telling you, if we don't live this way, we need to just be quiet and go play golf on Sunday morning. Amen? Amen? Yeah, we shouldn't bother coming here because you're heaping coals of fire on your head. This is the very heart of the gospel we preach. Jesus Christ reviled for us. Jesus naked for us. Jesus filthy for us. And then he says, trace your life. Trace your life around that. Write your life story. Make it legible so people can read it. Don't be afraid. God will judge rightly. He will not let you fall. He will be with you. The redemptive response. He himself, look at this is the Redeemer. Look, and I'll finish with this. Verses 23 through 25. He reaches back into the Old Testament. And I, I, I beg you, go back today after church sometime with your families or just alone and read Isaiah 53, start in, in 52. I think it's uh, the latter part of 52. You'll see the break from 52 to 53. Read it. Peter reaches back into that rich, deep, redemptive history of Jesus Christ, the suffering servant. Reaches back 750 years before Jesus was born. Peter reaches back into that suffering service the, servant theology and brings it into his present. And he says this, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we are healed. He's not talking about physical healing, folks. He's talking about our sinful, broken, messed up lives. By His stripes, by His wounds, He puts us back together. He heals that sickness unto death. The sickness unto death that was taking you and me to the grave. Jesus comes and by giving His life, by burying those wounds in His body, He heals us so that we can live free and know that heaven is awaiting and that in heaven we will come back with all the saints to this earth and it will be transformed and renewed. His perfect lettering, our tracing our lives over that. Ours is never perfect, but legible. His was perfect. And through what we call in theology, there's no time to talk about it now. Maybe I'll talk a little bit about it next week. Active and passive obedience. You know, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Active obedience was Him living a perfectly righteous life for you and as you in your place. So that when God looks at us, He sees the work of Jesus. His perfect life. And for you and as you in His passive life. In other words, He was a lamb led to the slaughter. He was taken. He shut His mouth. He did not revile. He didn't threaten His He didn't say, I'll get you back for crucifying me. He said, Father, forgive them who crucify me. This is an extraordinarily different kind of life. 
And it goes counterintuitive to everything you see everywhere in the world except authentic historic Christianity where men and women and even children through the history and generations of our church, folks, there are little pockets where people actually believed this and actually stood up. And when they said, we're going to kill, we're going to kill this one here, there was a priest in Auschwitz, and they came to get some, some of the Jews, and the priest stood up and he said, no, take me, leave this man here, leave this Jew here. I'll go today. And the Nazis, they didn't care as long as they filled their quota. So they took the priest and killed him instead. And that man lived. That's what we're talking about. And it's hard for us as Americans to get our head around folks. But if you love Jesus, and I trust that most of you do, Archbishop Robert Layton said this was his business. This was Jesus' business. Not only to rectify man by his example, in other words, live a perfect life as a man, but to redeem him by his blood. Wow. A perfect man. A perfect A. And he asks you to trust him and trace your life over that A in everything you do. Will you do it? I hope you will. Let's pray. Father, um, we, not for one minute, Father, do we live under the illusion that this will be easy. We know it's going to be hard. We know it's going to cost us. We know that some of us will indeed suffer. Uh, not sure where and how, but we will. And we pray that you will give us the courage to live redemptively for others, to love and serve them in this way, the same way you gave your life for us, that we would, in fact, give our life for them. We pray that you'll help us do it, Father. Help us give our lives for our spouses, for our children, for our co-workers, for even people of other political parties who we don't agree with. Help us give our lives for them, for people of other colors and races and nationalities and religions. Help us learn how to live sacrificially and redemptively for them. Please, Father, for the sake of your name and for your kingdom, I pray that you will create a revival in your church today that for centuries people will write about these days. We beg you to do it. We've been complacent too long. Help us, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.